Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. What is up, Fight Fans? Another edition of Inside Boxing Live. I am your host, Dan Canelway. We have a big one for you today as all things culminate this Saturday. Arguably the biggest fight card of the year. We got Canelo Alvarez taking on Danny Jacobs out in Las Vegas. Joining us to talk about the fight is the man that will be calling the fight. Uh, SI.com's Chris Mannix will be in the booth alongside Brian Kenny uh, and, and Sergio Mora, and he'll break down what he thinks is going to happen in the ring, as well as Anthony Joshua's future opponent, who I think will be announced uh, any minute now. So Chris Maddox will join us, as well as Rob Perez, but you know him as Worldwide Wob. I collaborated with him on a very funny story that he came up with about NBA basketball players and their inefficiency to land any punches uh, when they get into brawls. So we'll talk about some of the biggest fights uh, in NBA history. We'll have some fun with that. But obviously, the biggest fight of the year, uh, at least for the, the first half of 2019, is just a few days away, and that's Canelo and Jacobs. And right now, I want to do a little preview here and show you why, and I poured over the numbers, and I want to show you why that I think that this fight will be more of a calculated chess match uh, than a brawl. And I'll start with the fact that both fighters throw under the middleweight uh, average for punches thrown. The middleweight average is somewhere uh, around 55, 56. And Canelo uh, comes in there throwing 44 punches around. Jacobs throws 47 punches around. But they are very efficient. Canelo lands above average. uh, I'm sorry, he lands above average 46% of his shots. Jacobs around 42. That leads me to believe that the fact that they don't throw as many punches, they're under 50, but when they do throw their punches, they land. They find their mark. So there it is. There's going to be pockets of this fight where there's some really, really uh, a good action. Another reason why I think this fight is going to be very close. Both fighters have above-average defense. Neither guy uh, gets credited for their defense, especially Canelo Alvarez. But you take a look at opponents, uh, Canelo's opponents, they land just eight power punches around. Take a look at Jacob's opponents, even better than Canelo. They're landing seven power punches around the middleweight average for power punches landed in a round is 12 so both guys are going to be elusive both guys use lateral movement which leads me to my next point and why i ultimately think that canelo will win a unanimous decision is that canelo is going to target the body of jacobs one thing jacobs does well is he moves around the ring he's very he's a lot of lateral movement and one way to stop movement is to go to the body 30 percent of canelo alvarez uh, canelo alvarez's landed punches to the body. So he's going to t- target the body of Danny Jacobs. He's going to slow him down. And a big reason I don't think Jacobs is going to be able to slow down Canelo is because he doesn't have the best jab. He throws it a lot, but it's not very accurate. He throws 20 jabs and only lands four rounds. So therefore, you know, Danny Jacobs has to stop Canelo somehow. you got to use a jab. Look what Golovkin did uh, in their fights, whether you think he won them or not. He was able to slow down uh, Canelo by sticking a jab in there every once in a while. So there it is. I think that Canelo is going to win this fight. But I also think it's going to be, you know, high-powered chess. You hear that a lot in boxing, but it's, it's a cliche, but it works in this one. Not really a brawl, more likely a very, very highly contested fight out uh, in the desert in Las Vegas. All right, but now it's time to get to our interview portion of the show. We're going to talk to a man who will be in the booth on Saturday calling the action. He was Chris Mannix. 
Our next interview on Inside Boxing Live is brought to you by Jack Doyle's Restaurant and Bar. Jack Doyle's Restaurant and Bar located just a few steps away from Madison Square Garden and Times Square. Go into Jack Doyle's for all your entertainment needs. From happy hours to birthday parties to private events, Jack Doyle's has you covered. Once again, that's Jack Doyle's Restaurant and Bar located on 240 West 35th Street. NBA playoffs in full swing. The boxing world seemingly breaking news on a daily basis. It's Chris Mannix's busy season, but he's got some time for us here on Inside Boxing Live. Chris, you got to be downing the coffee right now. Yeah, a little bit. Uh, certainly the next couple of months, figure be pretty busy on both boxing and basketball. Chris, you'll be on the call this Saturday night for Canelo and Jacobs. Going from reporting, now you're in the broadcast booth. Uh, what's it been like, man? It's a new experience. Uh, I've been part of broadcasts dating back, you know, last five to ten years even, uh, you know, for Epics and NBC. But those were all sideline gigs, you know, reporting. Uh, this is kind of a new experience, but I, I think I'm settling in okay. I'll let the, the audience decide. I think the reviews have been good. Yeah, you're settling in nice. you got to score the fights as well. It's tough. But I think uh, overall, people seem to be happy with uh, your work uh, in the booth. Now let's talk about the actual fight here between Canelo uh, and Jacobs. And the more that I, that I pour over the numbers and I see that both fighters throw under uh, 50 punches a round. Uh, they are pretty efficient, though, with their power shots. Canelo a little bit more th- th- than Jacobs. Canelo obviously is going to go to the body. Jacobs throws his jab a lot, but it's it's not enough. He's not really accurate with it. So the more I think about those numbers, leads me to believe that we are heading down a road here where we're going to see another very close decision. Yeah, I, I feel the same way. And I honestly don't know which way I'm leaning right now because – I still haven't really formulated a, a full opinion on how much slippage there's been in Danny Jacobs over the last couple of years. Um, you know, Gennady Golovkin has a way of taking something out of you if you're a fighter that's faced him. We, we've seen it with a couple of different guys that that he's gone up against. Um, and, and Jacobs, you know, I don't know that Jacobs took a, a beating in that fight. It certainly was a close fight at Mad Square Garden, but at 32 years old and having experienced a fight like that, I just wonder if he's a little bit lesser than what he was against Golovkin. I was at the Derevchenko fight at the Garden, his last fight. I actually, if I remember correct, I think I had Derevchenko winning by a point in that fight. It was it was close, and even if you didn't have Derevchenko winning, you knew it was a very close fight. Uh, Canelo's on a different level than Derevchenko, and I know that. You know, A plus B does not equal B plus C, you know, with the, those types of opponents. But um, I, 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 right now I lean towards Canelo, but I'm still trying to wrap my head around what exactly Danny Jacobs is at this moment. Yeah, it's an interesting point you bring up with Jacobs, 32 years old, fought Golovkin, uh, you know, went toe-to-toe with him. How much did that take out of him? So what does he have left uh, in the tank come, come Saturday night? As for Canelo Alvarez, you know, 28 years old, uh, he's been through a lot of wars himself, so you're thinking that Canelo is maybe the fresher fighter. Yeah, I do. And look, to, to your point, I think there's a cliff with Canelo that is going to come sooner than than probably he wants and, and his team wants because of all the tough fights he's been in, dating back to the junior middleweight fights with Eris Landy Lara and Austin Trout and the tough middleweight fights he's taken with Gennady Golovkin. But at this point... I do think he's still on a bit of an upswing. I mean, he was a better fighter in the second fight against Golovkin, regardless of what you thought about the decision. You know, his decision to take the fight to Golovkin showed me something. His ability to land big punches on Golovkin showed me something. His hand speed, 
I think is going to be a big advantage for him in, in a fight like this uh, against Danny Jacobs. And I know Rocky Fielding, you know, lost before he ever stepped into the ring, but the body attack that Canelo showed in that fight, it, it really impressed me. So I think Canelo is still trending upwards. I just think, it, it, you know, when he hits 30, we might see a reasonably rapid decline. Yeah, and it's funny because we had uh, matchmaker Golden Boy Robert Diaz on the show, and he told us that he didn't want any part of Lara. He didn't want any part uh, of Trout. Did he? Did he get hit? Let me ask you this because, and you have the numbers there. Like I, I felt that Golovkin. One of the reasons I leaned towards Golovkin in the second fight is that he was just ricocheting that jab off of Canelo's head. Like Canelo wanted to get inside, and Golovkin was landing that. That was a power jab. Like that's. And to, to your other point about you know Jacobs not jabbing enough. He should look at Golovkin as a blueprint. I know that you know he didn't get the decision, but Gennady Golovkin had no problem landing that jab on the head of Canelo Alvarez. Canelo, to his credit, was just willing to fight through it to land the bigger shots. But going to Canelo in this contract, you know, I'm thinking about you know he's got to go through a gauntlet here. I mean, he's fighting. He fought two fights with Golovkin. You just illustrated all the fights that he had at 154 and 160. Some of the biggest fights because that's the type of fighter he is. And now with this zone deal. This kind of makes things a little different here. In the era of soft touches, in the era of you know tune-up fights and the best not fighting the best, that's not going to be able to happen with this new DAZN deal because you know the whole business side of things. They got to add subscribers, and their cash cow is Canelo. So therefore, he has to fight in very tough fights now and in the future. Yeah, I, I don't think that DAZN is opposed to paying for the occasional soft touch, the occasional rocky fielding type. But at least for 2019, it's this fight, and if he wins. It's Golovkin in September. And look, I've heard some some whispers from Canelo's camp about not being thrilled about the idea that they're going to fight Danny Jacobs in May. And Golovkin, most people believe that is going to get a very easy touch in June. So he'll, be, he'll potentially be the fresher fighter. Uh, I do think, though, that Canelo just tends to overrule everybody. You know, he, he you know, I remember Richard Schaefer, you know, before the Arislandi Lara fight w would say to me that. He, he never wanted that fight, right. and nobody at Golden Boy wanted that fight. Just Canelo yeah. is determined to fight the best possible opponents whenever they present themselves. So regardless of what people at Golden Boy think, as long as the deal is right, I think we will see Canelo and Golovkin if they both win in September. Right. We had Robert Diaz on this show before, and he, he was didn't want uh, Canelo to, to even go near Trout, didn't want Canelo to go near Lara, and Canelo just straight up said, listen, this is who I'm fighting. Maybe a soft touch in the Canelo world now would be Kovalev as a name that he's been calling out, you know, an older <laughs> – uh, fighter, but I, I I do think that they're really depending on him to to like you know drive these subscriptions. Another thing, uh, Triple G, uh, Simon Dazone, that's not news, but big news was him uh, getting rid of uh, Abel Sanchez. Did you have any inclination that that was going to happen? I know you're pretty close. You have a pretty good working relationship with uh, Golovkin. Yeah, no, I mean there were no problems between Golovkin and Abel Sanchez up until the money start getting discussed, and that came around right after the Dazone deal was signed. Uh, we all know the numbers with that. They're extraordinary for Golovkin. And I think Abel wanted his piece of the pie and wanted to get paid according uh, to the work he has done, not just as a trainer, but also as kind of a co-promoter to all this. Because Abel Sanchez, you know, yeah. is a great talker and Gennady is not. So he's able to sell uh, some of these fights with, with some of the things that he said. I mean, I was at the press conference for the last week's The Zone fight uh, with Estrada and Sorungvisai. And the news broke, and I called Abel from the press conference, and he just unloaded. He said, <laughs> "I know." You know he man. called them. He called them ungrateful. Uh, I'm forgetting his exact quote right now, but you know, greedy. And it was it was ugly, and it is ugly between uh, those two guys. So it, it's unfortunate because they have one of the strongest, or had one of the strongest fighter trainer relationships 
uh, that we've seen in boxing in a while, but mm -hmm. it, it seems like that bridge has been pretty firmly burned. Have you heard any uh, replacements? I know there's, you know, go on Twitter. You're not going to, I mean, some crazy names get thrown out there. But have you heard anything about a replacement uh, for, for Abel Sanchez uh, for Triple G? Well, I, I know two things. One, Freddie Roach is not doing it because right. Freddie was asked about a million times last week if he was doing it. And he has not heard anything from uh, Gennady Golovkin's team. I have been told that it, it's not going to be a situation where he pulls kind of a Klitschko Jonathan Banks and pulls somebody within his own camp. Uh, to do it. He is going to go out and look for a outside trainer to step in. A name that I've heard floated is Joe Goosen. Uh, you know, Joe is Southern California based yeah. and, you know, is, is more of a motivator too. And maybe that's what Gennady needs at this point. Someone to get in his ear and, and, and just kind of push him that extra mile a little bit. He doesn't need someone to change him technically at this stage of his career, but uh, we're coming up on it. I mean, he's going to have to get into camp, you know, very soon if he's not already and, and start working towards this uh, June fight. Another thing, though, I'm thinking about with, with Abel Sanchez and the, to see how he reacts or the, his reaction to this. And if you're a fighter, would you be a little skeptical to to sign on with Abel Sanchez if if say something goes wrong, he's just going to trash you afterwards? I mean, at a certain level, maybe if you're a top level guy looking for a trainer, possibly. But if you're a younger guy and you know you need somebody to guide your career, Abel did a terrific job. Yeah. I mean, Gennady came over and he was already. Uh, a recognized world title holder, but Abel did a terrific job in helping him really adapt to the pro style, sit down his punches, and become the star that he is today. So I think that's more valuable and resonates more with fighters than what happened at the end. We, you know, we we see, you know, when Freddie Roach broke up with Pacquiao and Emmanuel Stewart's had stuff happen in the past, like there, it happens sometimes when things end badly. It's it's the yeah. level of trainer that I think fighters are interested in. Yeah, no, I think that the discussion is like, what's more important here? Is it the fighter? Is it the trainer? Is it fifty fifty? It's it's interesting because this just opened up a whole new discussion uh, in the boxing uh, community. Uh, let's talk about Anthony Joshua quickly. Uh, his opponent. Have you hearing anything about this? Because that's another fight that's that's right around the corner. I know that uh, Ruiz seems like he's a favorite. There are some matchroom guys in there. Have you? What's the latest on uh, Anthony Joshua and who he, who he could be fighting on June first? Yeah, I was told that Ruiz is a pretty strong favorite to the point where I'm I'm a little surprised it wasn't announced uh, this past weekend. Um, you know, may, you know, there there I'm sure are a lot of cooks in the kitchen here. There's the matchroom people and what they want. There's the zone side and what they want. And of course, Madison Square Garden is involved in this decision as well. So there are a lot of people weighing in on all this, but everything I've heard over the last week or so has leaned towards uh, Andy Ruiz. He's coming off that win, uh, a knockout win on national TV. So that gives him a bit of a boost. He's more of a well-known name than say a Michael Hunter is. Right. Uh, so I think Ruiz is there. The question, and, and this is like, I mean, I th there's so much back and forth, but Luis Ortiz turning it down is just completely crazy, okay. like out of his mind crazy. Luis Ortiz is probably never going to make $7 million in a fight, no matter who he fights. And that is what I was told when he was offered uh, all in to fight Anthony Joshua. If he turned that down, he needs to fire all the people, or at least I don't, I don't like to say fire people, but uh, he needs to have a serious conversation with the people around him about what happened in that situation. Well, I mean, I watched some video yesterday on his trainer, and I'm like about 30 seconds in, and he's like, $5 million wasn't enough. That's when I, I just turned off the, the video, and I was like, all right, that's what they're talking. Like, $5 million is not enough when his highest purse was 500000 for Wilder. Unless Heyman is promising him, you know, crazy amount of money uh, for the Wilder rematch. I tweeted this uh, last week. I think that Joshua 
and and Ortiz could have fought. Ortiz puts up a valiant effort. He loses. He can still go back to Wilder and still get that's the double payday. So you're right, absolutely head scratching uh, decision from Team Ortiz. And that's that's where it gets tricky too because it seems like everybody's getting promised Deontay Wilder to keep them out of an Anthony Joshua right. fight. I mean. You know, Adam Kanaki, you know, one thing I heard recently was that he really isn't in great shape right now. And, you know, not ready for, you know, a six-week training camp might be too fast for him to be in a reasonable position. So I buy that. Plus, I think he's going to get a multi-fight deal um, as part of the, the PBC package. And he deserves it because he's a very popular guy and a fun fighter uh, to watch. But Luis Ortiz is just a, a complete head-scratcher. And, look, he, he better look at his promoters and managers and said, look, at, at a bare minimum, I was promised $5 million in my next fight. I want $5 million because you're right. Even, you know, even if he, if he lost, he'd still have $5 million and lost Anthony Joshua right. and probably still be in the mix to fight Deontay Wilder. If he won, all of a sudden you got a rematch with Joshua, a unification fight with Wilder. You are 10 times more valuable if you uh, take that fight against Anthony Joshua. That, that is the most puzzling of it all. Crazy, crazy times in the world of boxing. Crazy times in the NBA. Uh, crazy times in, in Chris Maddox's life right now. I know it's, it's a busy, busy time for you. We got a worldwide wob coming on the show next, and we're going to talk about a little NBA brawls that helped him out with a, a piece that ran on the Action uh, Network. Uh, Serge Ibaka is one of the worst fighters. Who is the worst NBA fighter uh, you've ever seen covering the NBA? You know, I – God, there's so many bad ones. <laughs> I've watched a lot of it's them. Not- and I can't even tell if they're bad fighters or they just clearly recognize that if they connect on a punch, it's probably at least a five-game suspension, if not more, and millions of dollars potentially uh, if they're high-salary guys uh, out of their pocket. I remember the Carmelo Anthony, uh, what was it? I think it was a J.R. Smith fight years ago in, in New York where I think Carmelo just kind of, if I remember correctly, was just moonwalking the entire way through yeah. that fight. Then there was the old Alonzo Morning with, you know, Jeff Van Gundy attached yes. to his leg that you was know, back a, in the day. I, that's, I scoured over that one. And uh, the best one that I uh, watched was Chris Child's two-piece combination that he landed on Kobe, which was stuff of legends. Yeah, there, there was a time, you know, before David Stern and Adam Silver really cracked down on all this, there was a time that guys would, you know, throw punches. But now you don't even leave the bench because, you know, one game suspension is coming. And with these types of salaries, that's a whole lot of money you're not going to get. There it is. Chris Maddox, appreciate the time. This Saturday will be on the call for uh, the biggest fight of the year, uh, Danny Jacobs and uh, Canelo Alvarez. Thanks for the time, Chris. My pleasure. If you've been consumed with Game of Thrones, and you probably have not been following up on the boxing news this week. There's a lot of items that are going on, a lot of big-time boxing news. We get you all caught up with this week's In Case You Missed It. We'll start off with Devin Haney. Devin Haney signs with Matchroom. This is a huge signing for Eddie Hearn and his Matchroom USA outfit. Uh, Devin Haney was a big-time free agent. He was a, a very interesting case because this was a kid who's 20 years old, 21-0. He's ranked in the top 10 uh, in all three of the uh, governing bodies, number three in the WBC. We'll touch on that in a second. But this is huge uh, for Eddie Hearn because Devin Haney's a kid that uh, is looked at in the same regard as Teofimo Lopez. I think Teofimo's slightly ahead of him prospect-wise. And I don't even think they're prospects, actually. I think these are legit contenders uh, at that at this point. But Haney was interesting because 
he was kind of promoting himself. He had a very interesting uh, setup, if you've been following along with him. Uh, lives out in Las Vegas. You know, he's got a ton of money, a ton of cars. Has that whole Mayweather uh, outlook. And it seemed like he was going to kind of do this on his own and kind of take the Mayweather approach before Mayweather left top rank. Not the case. So I'm wondering how much money uh, Matchroom and Andy Hearn threw at him because it seemed like he was content on doing his own thing. But... He signs with Matchroom, huge signing for them, and it kind of shakes things up, or not really shakes things up, but sets the picture a little bit for what's going to go on uh, in that weight class. Will he fight Luke Campbell now? Luke Campbell is the the mandatory now, or the number one contender in the WBC. It was like a jockeying for position on who's going to fight Luke Campbell. For a while, we thought it was going to be Tiafimo Lopez. Now, does Devin Haney slide right into there uh, and, and take that? If that's the case, then you can maybe see Richard Comey fight uh, Teofimo Lopez. But that's probably not going to happen next because I spoke to Richard Comey at Broadway Boxing, and he seems like he's going to come back in June uh, with a voluntary defense and then maybe fight in December. Where does Lomachenko sit here? Is Lomachenko going to you know, kind of springboard over Devin Haney and, and, and fight Luke Campbell or fight Richard Comey? So that division... Uh, certainly heating up. A lot of moving parts here, but Devin Haney signs on with Matchroom and DAZN. Huge, huge signing uh, for Eddie Hearn. He is a fighter that is going to be a world champion. It's uh, just a, a matter of time. Moving forward here, we just talked about the, the lightweight division and why the picture has opened up in the WBC. It's because Mikey Garcia officially announced that he is vacating his WBC lightweight belt. He has now uh, the champion emeritus uh, distinction, which is very rare, not given out very um, lightly by the WBC. Basically, what it means is that Mikey Garcia, should he choose the fight again, at, uh, at 135, that he'll be uh, immediately get a title uh, shot, immediately get a chance to win back his title. That's what that champion emeritus uh, means. But he says his next fight will either be at 140 or 147. That's Mikey uh, Garcia. Like we said, Luke Campbell is, the, is now the, the, the challenger or the, the number one contender uh, for the WBC. But Garcia was on Inside PBC Boxing on Fox. Uh, and he talked about how there are some names at 147 that he still wants to go after. I think that's a little far-fetched. I think we saw what would happen at 147 when he fights a bigger guy. Maybe he should go to 140. There's some. There's certainly a lot of names at 140 that, that he can fight and, and he can take home a, a belt. So, obviously, everyone wants to see him fight Lomachenko. I mean, is that going to happen? Who knows? But uh, Mikey Garcia, I don't think he's going to fight at 147. Don't think he's going to fight at 135. Perfect middle ground. 140. Also, don't think he's going to come back anytime soon because he took an absolute shellacking uh, to Errol Spence. He'd be smart to sit out for uh, at least you know another six, seven months. Biggest news of the week and something that caught everyone off guard, and we and we just spoke about it uh, with with Chris Mannix to get some more you know news on this. That's Triple G splitting with Abel Sanchez. Uh, obviously, over money, things got ugly really, really fast. You had Abel Sanchez, who's never afraid uh, to say what's on his mind, never one to mince words. You had Triple G's uh, statement put out there that, you know, I had a wonderful nine years with Abel, and he brought me to places, and it was very, you know, cordial and, like, your traditional press uh, press release. Then you had Abel Sanchez come out, and you knew he was going to come with some heat. Apparently, it's all over money. It has nothing to do with the fact that he uh, was not really trained properly, didn't have the greatest game plan for that, that second uh, Canelo fight. All over money. He's making $100 million now with this new DAZN deal. It's pretty clear that Abel Sanchez wants to keep the, the 10%. So that would make him you know $10 million. So I think that Golovkin offered him a, a lower price, and he didn't think it was enough. So he went from not taking any money to, to 
He owes him five percent. So that that that's that's interesting. So he owed him five percent instead of the ten. So obviously a pay cut. So he's probably thinking. April Sanchez is thinking. Why, you know, why if you're making more, why all of a sudden am I making less? So it set off a debate, or it set off something that boxers and trainers have been working on for a very long time. That's how much they're getting paid. So now, like the the boxing Twitterverse and the fans are starting to understand. You're taking sides here. Who's more important? Is it the trainer? Is it the fighter? Who, who do we give more credit to? Is the fighters in the ring? You know, do, actually taking the punches. But when you're at the, the the level that Golovkin's at, you know, you've reached the pinnacle, and now you're on the tail end of your career. You know what you have to do when you step in the ring. You know what you have your game plan. So maybe it's a motivational thing. And when it's a motivational thing, you need a new you need a new voice in your ear. So I'm not really surprised uh, that he separated from Joe Goosen is a name that uh, Chris Mannix threw out, and it's a name that a lot of people are throwing out. I love Joe Goosen. I think he is a great trainer. Look what he did with Lipinets. Uh, look what he's done with everyone uh, that he's worked with in his career. So that would be interesting. And finally from here, Ishe Smith. Yes, before you say, you know, what does Ishe Smith know? Like he he's uh, a journeyman in, in his career. But Ishe Smith is a fighter that has been a part of a lot of training camps. He was with Floyd Mayweather for years. He's been a part of Hall of Fame training camps. He knows what goes on behind the scenes with trainers and, and fighters. He tweeted out, some interesting stuff here. He said most top boxers uh, you've watched over the years, especially pay-per-view fighters, have not paid a trader uh, 10%. He knows this as a fact because he was in camp with a lot of Hall of Fame fighters. They told me themselves that there was a flat fee, no more uh, 10%. And he went on to say that if a fighter makes $500 million, you would want 50 And for a fact, the fighters reach a certain level and the 10% goes out the window. Oscar never gave Floyd 10%, Floyd Sr. I know that for a fact. So there's some insight on it that... Just because you reach a certain amount of money doesn't mean you're going to get uh, that, that 10%. Interesting times in, in the in the trainer world, and I don't think that Sanchez did himself any favors by trashing uh, Golovkin if he wants to add more star clients uh, to, to his uh, pretty big uh, regime that he's got uh, here. Finally, Marcos Maidana cuts ties with his uh retirement uh plan he uh retires once again i hate to say this but i saw it coming i think we all saw it coming he says he doesn't have this enthusiasm anymore so he pretty much lost 44 pounds for no reason he uh interrupted his drinking time he interrupted his time of shooting guns into rivers because he wanted to come back i think that fox had him slated for this july card which is supposedly going to be pacquiao thurman uh, they were going to slide him in there. He was going to fight uh, Francisco Santana, probably at 168 or 160. He said, no mas, I'm done. I can't do this anymore. And it, it makes sense. I mean, he was 35 years old. I mean, how hard is it to cut weight uh, when you're in your 30s? Uh, Tyson Fury was able to do it because he was legitimately 30 years old and his body could, could do it. 35 after being off for, what, five years? Uh, the lifestyle that Maidano was living over in Argentina, blowing up, he was huge. He was legitimately huge. So now uh, he goes back to Argentina and he can live his life. He can keep on tweeting pictures and we can go back to uh, loving Marcos Maidana. But happy trails uh, to Mr. Marcos Maidana. Enjoy retirement uh, once again. And that's it for this week's In Case You Missed It. 
Our next interview on Inside Boxing Live is brought to you by Jack Doyle's Restaurant and Bar. Jack Doyle's Restaurant and Bar located just a few steps away from Madison Square Garden and Times Square. Go into Jack Doyle's for all your entertainment needs. From happy hours to birthday parties to private events, Jack Doyle's has you covered. Once again, that's Jack Doyle's Restaurant and Bar located on 240 West 35th Street. Our next guest here on Inside Boxing Live, he's big in the Twitter world covering the world of basketball, but as I'll talk about next, basketball and the world of boxing have a lot of overlaying uh, tendencies and themes, and we're going to bring in right now Worldwide Wob, Mr. Rob Perez, you know him on Twitter, one of the best Twitter follows uh, you can possibly have there on the Twitter machine, Mr. Rob Perez, what's going on, man? Not a whole lot, just waking up, uh, recording this just a couple hours after the... uh... Game of Thrones episode ended. Yes. Uh, we had Rockets Clippers. I mean, I'm sorry. We had Rockets. Uh, that's how. That's how crazy it's been. I forgot <laughs> the names of the teams. We had Rockets Warriors, and uh, just a, a weekend of hoops and uh, big fights with Crawford last weekend. Obviously, so a yeah. um, lot going on. It, it never stops in this content business, so it's all good. All right. The reason I have you on here is because you and I collaborated on a piece. You hit. You hit up me up at CompuBox, and you're working on a story about why NBA basketball players are so terrible at fighting and it's funny because we would do stats on these fights and um you know someone would alert me like hey there was a big fight uh in the nba chris paul recently and and, you know serge Ibaka, and we'll talk about serge Ibaka in a little bit and um someone i would go look for the best footage of it and i would see worldwide wob (laughs) would have the best footage of i'm like all right who's worldwide wob anyway so I, i i would retweet it and then we would throw our stats on it and then, you know, you hit me up for, for this piece, and I thought it was absolutely hilarious. Pretty much what it was is you went over some of the most prolific fights in NBA history, asked us to do some stats for it. You know, as you were looking over this stuff, you know, what did you think of some of these fights? Well, it was the first – Serge Ibaka is the, the culprit here. He's uh, he's the, the main test subject because after he fought Marquise Chris this year in the Cleveland Cavaliers, it was a completely random fight. Yeah. Serge Ibaka whiffed unlike I've ever seen him whiff. And this is about the third or fourth time that he's whiffed. So now I have to start asking the question, why is Serge Ibaka so bad at fighting? Because he is he's not afraid to throw hands. He's not one of those hold me back guys. Mm-hmm. He has gotten into plenty of altercations, as you quickly learned throughout his NBA career. But he's never close to landing a punch. And how is somebody this athletically gifted this poor at fighting so then the bigger picture came in here of why do nba players all stink at fighting it's not just the hold me back stuff but there are only a couple examples throughout time nba history where there is a solid punch connect what is the explanation here so i thought there was no better person to bring in than the CompuBox owners themselves to kind of help us dissect this and maybe it's something with their technique their form they got a bunch of dudes in their way trying to like push them whatever the reason was is or forever will be nba players stink at fighting i think is ultimately what we determined to hear yeah and the piece it was it was awesome it was great and in looking over some of the the the, the fights i mean obviously i'm an nba fan so i'll see some of the fights and people hit me up and boxing twitter would always hate uh, these fights, like they would be posting, they'd be like, ah, it wasn't a fight. And like they would always like look down upon like NBA players and, and like these guys can't fight. But a big reason we just had Chris Maddox on and he brought up a good point the fact that they can certainly land. Like I know these guys can land, but they just don't want to because they don't want to be suspended five games. That's five, uh, that's five paychecks or five uh, game checks. I, I don't buy that because there is legitimate intent. We've seen the Shaquille O'Neal fights from that article and yeah. there's videos of it as well where he just 
if he connected on Brad Miller, the famous one, when he was playing him. for the Lakers, Brad Miller would be dead right now. <laughs> yes. We would be having a conversation about how NBA fights never happen because of what happened between Shaq and Brad Miller. Yeah. And I understand how hockey fans especially look down on us because our guys fight every single night and we stand there and we let it happen while NBA is just like pushing and threats and pointing. Yeah. I under, like th- Maybe that's what makes it so great is when there is an actual real fight. Yeah. It's like, oh, oh, oh crap, that, like this is actually going down. So um, maybe that's I, I don't know, but it, with NBA fights, when you get a real one, I don't think it's because they don't want to fight. They clearly do because tensions get high, and I think just uh, masculinity and testosterone take over. They just stink at fighting. Yeah. I, we determine this. They're just bad at fighting. End of story. <laughs> it's funny you bring up the NHL. That last week, Ovechkin. Did you see that fight? I mean, that was nasty stuff, and it made me think. Like, I can't believe in today's world that the NHL still allows them. They're fighting with just bare knuckles, and they're just blasting each other. And the refs just allow it. And he absolutely laid out this, like, 20-year-old player. I don't know what his name was. We did the the stats on it. But it's pretty wild that the NBA obviously doesn't want fights, but the NHL is so open to it. Well, I I, I think the NHL, if the stuff that happens with Ovechkin, again, for people that didn't watch that, Ovechkin just straight up knocked out a dude. (laughs) Cold. dangerously knocked out a dude. Maybe they're going to require that you can continue to fight, but you got to keep your gloves and helmets on because if you throw the gloves like you're supposed to, yeah. then it becomes a bare knuckle fight and you go up against someone like Ovechkin that has the power to actually seriously hurt somebody. Yeah. I think it takes that one time, that malice at the palace per se, for hockey for the rules to change. Talking about how you got into covering the NBA and how you got such a big following, uh, tell us a little bit about that. Sure. It's been a it's I haven't had like what I like to call a Ken Bone moment. And if you remember Ken (laughs) Bone, he was the guy at the the presidential debates that stood up and Mm -hmm. asked that funny question in in hockey stick viraled overnight. For me, it's just been a very slow, organic drip of being a basketball fan. So I just created a Twitter account like everyone else did about 10 years ago. It had always been kind of part time, uh, just kind of tweeting out my thoughts about the NBA. And I've evolved throughout the years with the technology. So as we progressed towards the year of like 2013, 2014, I was able to illustrate what it was I was watching on the games now on the internet through an app called Vine. And I know RIP Vine is like a thing now. I miss Vine every day. Yeah, at at one point, like you couldn't put videos on the internet just as much as four or five years ago. Right. Uh, So I was able to start illustrating the things I was seeing and all the jokes and the actual analysis, it helped me just kind of evolve a bigger audience because I wasn't restricted to just 140 characters. Mm-hmm. You progress another couple of years after that, and then here comes Periscope, which was an opportunity for me to live broadcast to the world. And now after these games are over, I'm getting, you know, just I'm having a, sh- a post game show yeah. per se. There's no real post game show other than Sports Center mm-hmm. or inside the NBA once a week for for NBA specifically. That something big just happened in the league. I'm going to go live and talk about it. But that didn't start like where it is now. That started with 50 people in there watching me cook pizza rolls <laughs> at three o'clock in the morning on the West Coast because yeah. I struck out at the bar. Mm-hmm. But 50 people developed into 500 because I started going at normal hours and talking about things of substance. And we built this kind of community and culture over the past decade that has gotten us to this point. So it definitely wasn't one of those like this, you know, just kind of happened. Uh, I think it's just been putting in the work and then kind of moving over towards full time and honestly just using the resources that were available to me and staying ahead of the technology. 
in, in the world of boxing a few years ago, the first thing that comes to mind, the craziness of boxing, Juan Manuel Marquez, who fought Pacquiao four times, he did it, they did it 24-7, and he was sitting after training, and he drank his own urine. And people, like, when that's like the bizarre, I'm going to see that in the NBA, but it certainly goes down that path of how, like, strange the world of, like, the NBA outside of the court, and same thing with boxing. It's it's. So- it's wild. So uh, boxing's biggest challenge now moving forward is their equivalent of LeBron James, which was Floyd Money Mayweather to the to the common fan is gone. Right. He retired out of the league. Right. So what does the NBA do when LeBron you know disappears? Is they're going to fall back on the Giannis Antetokounmpo's and yep. the Rants and the Embiid's? Uh, boxing's big challenge is how are they going to continue to sell these billion dollar fights, the Mayweather mm-hmm. Pacquiao's? That should have happened five years ago. Right. How do we make that happen now and get the world back? Uh, super interested in boxing because like you myself and everyone watching this we could watch Lomachenko Crawford you name you name I could watch Tyson Fury box all day and day (laughs) but uh, you can't really sell that to the world in terms of 10 out of 10 people on the sidewalk are talking about it the next day so I think that is their biggest challenge is how do we sell this next superstar is it somebody that's cocky like Mayweather or is it a genuine like happy-go-lucky guy like Triple G mm-hmm. that's what they need to figure yeah, out yeah it's, it's tough it's because it's a niche sport right now I mean it's it's never gonna die and it's never gonna get to the levels it was in the 80s but it would be nice to kind of up the profiles of Deontay Wilders and, and whatnot but now let's go through some of these these fights man let's talk about some of these fights that uh, these basketball brawls, I don't want to, should we call them fights? We'll call them uh, interactions. Uh, altercations. Altercations. Hold me back. These are a few <laughs> that, that I loved uh, that we talked about. The first one was Shaq uh, versus Robertson. Shaq lands the hardest punch. I gave him an 8 out of 10. Uh, he was he lands the hardest punch out of all that you sent me. Uh, he went one for him to power shot. Shaq was an interesting case because we talked about him and, and Brad Miller, who, who he grazed his ear. Uh, the footage wasn't this. I think it was like standard definition days, but it gra- grazed his ear. But this shot that he landed on Robinson was short, compact. It was everything you want to see from a fighter. Uh, what do you think of it? Was like a closed fist slap, though, because he like looks at him, looks down on him, yeah. takes his fist out, shows it to him, and just <laughs> whap, like across. I mean, he makes like as solid of a connection as as possible. Yeah. And getting hit by anything by Shaq is like dangerous. But what if he had actual form there and used it like in the form of a jab, he like the one with. Well. Me- because remember, the famous one that Shaq has is with Charles Barkley, right. and he comes in with a straight left. That right. would have killed almost any human on the spot, like disintegrated them into dust. Yeah. But with Robertson, because he's so little, he just, he's not going to punch down on him. Maybe that's why fights are so bad in the NBA is because of the height difference. Yes. He would have had to punch down on him, so he took out his fist and he just went like hammer style UFC. I guess it worked and it knocked Robertson back, but I don't know if it was the greatest form in the world. No, but it was the hardest. And I think, yes, if he, using the open hand is such like a blatant sign of disrespect. It's like in the, in like the 0.5 seconds, it takes me to realize I'm about to throw a punch, but I'll also realize that I'm much bigger than you. So I will give you the benefit of the doubt and I'll open up my hand and slap you, but still register eight out of 10 on, on, on my scale. Next fight that I loved, and this isn't because I'm a, a huge Knicks fan and I loved Chris Childs, but I talked about this in the, the piece where I helped you out. It's the lead right hand of Chris Childs. I said that you know Floyd Mayweather perfected the lead right hand. It's one of the hardest punches to throw in boxing. And Chris Childs comes along, throws a lead right, and then follows it up with a left. Like, very rarely do we see one punch land. But you got Chris Childs here throwing uh, combinations on arguably one of the best NBA players of all time. I love this one. 
So my question is, it, does Chris Childs have weak punch power or does Kobe <laughs> Bryant have a strong chin? That's could be a little bit of took, both. He took two of them like it was nothing. He didn't even like stagger back hardly. Right. I, I would probably say this is the best form of any punch that we analyze. I agree. Because he's actually got the stance and he landed the straight, you know, straight right like you talk about and came back with kind of like a hook per se. But there, there had to be no power on that because the form was so nice. You'd assume Kobe Brown would be on the ground or he could just take a punch. So uh, this is the easily the most famous one because of the two piece. But uh, as as a Knicks fan, you know we've been through so many of these brawls through the '90s uh, that this one probably stood out just because it was the one time that the Knicks actually won, yeah. like undoubtedly. But did they win? Is my question. If Kobe didn't go down, who who actually won that? It's tough. Like maybe because Kobe didn't fight back. Kobe and he's got the reflexes too, Kobe, because we saw with the ball fake. Or was that because he wasn't uh, the Bat Barnes? He was next to him, right? When the overhead, right. the overhead blew that one whole thing. But yeah, I mean, Childs throwing that two piece. It's very rare you see one punch land, unless you're, you know, Robin two Ventura, piece. a two piece. Robin Ventura and uh, Nolan Ryan. Nolan Ryan landed like 15 shots when he had them in his head. It just right. blasted them. That one I love, not just because uh, I'm a huge Knicks fan. Uh, how about we talked about Abaka and the fact that he could never land a punch? That was your main thing. We we talked about that. LJ and Alonzo Mourning, another s- seminal moment in my childhood. Uh, I was equally fired up and equally traumatized. Fired up to see a fight. Traumatized to see uh, Van Gundy like like a squirrel on someone's leg, like po- holding on. Like I was like ten years old, didn't know what to make of that, but I thought it was uh, amazing. But that one was interesting because there was a lot of like infighting before the fight actually started. Like there was like a few jabs, a few jabs. Then they started going at it, right. and and then you know Alonzo Mourning obviously that had everything. You, know, you had like leg locks, you had chokehold. Oakley came in and just straight up like like a bouncer at a club just moved him out of there. But I think that one had it is up there in terms of like one of the most memorable fights. So this fight in particular has a lot of buildup to it, and not just the actual fight itself. Like you said, there was a couple punches thrown, then it turned out, turned out into an all-out brawl. But you have to understand, Larry Johnson and Alonzo Mourning yeah. never liked each other. They were teammates on a playoff Charlotte Hornets team, and they did not like each other. They both thought they were the stars. They had a very much a Kobe Bryant Shaq thing going on. That who's the alpha here? Because mm-hmm. I'm the you're you're not the alpha because I'm the alpha type thing. So they never got along. And then when it became Heat Knicks in the Garden on a big game, and they ended up going eye to eye like that, it was ten years of, all right, let's get this out of our system right now. I would have preferred that there was no brawl. They just let them actually figure it out themselves. But that's the famous Van Gundy play coming oh in there. Grab, like, does that count as a leg lock of some kind? I count like, it as a leg lock. <laughs> like, <laughs> what kind of damage does that do? But at the very least, it kind of kept Alonzo in place for a, you know a brief second. But more importantly to me, this was finally at long last when you're waiting for either the Mayweather-Pacquiao fight. This is this is what it was in the 90s for the NBA because these two were destined to fight each other at some point, And it finally culminated at this point. Right. In the playoffs, nonetheless, too, when you don't right. want your guys to be out for the next game. Coming off the bench was always a big thing. That's another thing I noticed is that a lot of the, the better fights happened either in the early 2000s or the 90s. So it wasn't like – I feel like now – Maybe there's more their Twitter involvement. Do you see a correlation on why the fights were better? I think just maybe the style of play was a little more rough. I think the NBA is honestly just trying to limit them. Yeah. So if you come off the bench, you get suspended. It's what happened to the Suns, right? It ultimately cost them the series. You know what they don't want? They don't want the Vernon Maxwell thing to happen where we all talk about Malice at the Palace being the worst thing that's ever happened to the NBA. Yeah. Vernon Maxwell during a timeout stood up 
walked into the stands, knocked out a fan, and then that. walked back to the bench like nothing happened and got the play call like, okay, what are we running? The NBA can't have that anymore with social media. 2019 is a completely different world than it was in the 90s. Yeah. So they just can't have – they don't want the NBA brand to be known for like those NHL-type fights. Right. They want it to be known for basketball and obviously other things. And I think ultimately they're just trying to limit those that type of exposure, even though – uh, it, it's great for content consumers like us. All right, not to get too serious, but everything that's going on too with the fans, you know, like you know, yelling at Russell Westbrook or what happened in Utah. I mean, yeah, you're right. You don't want another malice in the palace because that it, encourages that too. Exactly. If you encourage fighting, it's going to encourage that type of behavior from yeah. the fans. How about this, Rob? Did you know that Kendall Gill called a major fight this past weekend in the world of boxing? I did not know that. <laughs> I did not want to prime you on that. I didn't want to tell you that early. I wanted to see your your reaction to that. I mean, I know he had a, has a four-fight career, so he fought actually in four professional fights. He's 4-0. and But I know he was, like, dabbling and calling fights, and uh, it was on zone. It was a World Boxing Super Series uh, yeah. main card. And Kendall Gill, and he got rave reviews. Wow. So Ken, Kendall Gill was a, at some point was a part of that Alonzo Morning Larry Johnson Hornets team, if I'm wow. not mistaken. So maybe that's where he, he got his fighting inspiration from, was just watching his teammates go at it. Uh, the other NBA player that I know has that type of experience, he's famous for it. It's James Johnson. Uh, Serge Ibaka was involved with an altercation uh, and missed once again with James, but he like totally backed off because the whole world knows James Johnson is a like licensed professional MMA fighter, oh, wow. and you don't mess with James Johnson. But I didn't know I, Kendall Gill would have been the absolute last guy I thought of. <laughs> right. Like I'm thinking of Isaiah Riders and Gilbert Arenas's that I would figure were professional fighters before Kendall Gill. But now I will tune in because of it. Not only Kendall Gill, yeah. Not only is he a fighter, but now he's you know part of major productions, uh, calling fights. It's wild. There's I talked to Chris Max about this. There's a lot of of NBA. Uh, players that are huge boxing fans, none bigger than uh, Dame Lillard. I know that he he's like not just like a casual. He knows like everything that's going on in the world of boxing. Yeah, so I I think NBA players appreciate the art of it. You know, boxing to me has always been an art versus something like UFC or MMA, which is like just pure humans trying to kill each other. Yeah, I agree. You know, there is a little artistry to boxing just because of the history and the what you're allowed to do. I guess your question is why do NBA players love it so much? Yeah. Um, I, it, I think they're friends with a lot of boxers, yes. you know, they, they, they're out of a, a lot of events together. They're completely different ends of the athletic spectrum. So it's not someone that's ever going to be competitive for me. We can be <laughs> boys. And a lot of these guys also had similar upbringings as well. So I'm sure Damian Lillard, uh, you know, he, he pimps all the time that he's from East Oakland and it's the, the way, right. the reason why he is who he is is because he's from East Oakland. And when you grow up in that type of community, I'm sure there are a lot of people who are fighting for a living that he grew up with and now are on the professional circuit. So there's just a lot of similarities, not only in terms of interests, but uh, I know these guys and I can relate to them because right. they went through something similar that I did at one point. Yeah, it's funny because uh, Mayweather would always fight in, in May or September and uh, it's either NBA playoffs or, you know, training camp just starting. But when he fought McGregor, it was a month before he fought him in August. And that's when I saw it. It was like it was all NBA. I mean, I was sitting behind. I was sitting in front of uh, Harden. He was there. LeBron was there. There were a ton of NBA. I went to go use the bathroom in between fights, and Rudy Gobert was in the urinal, and his head was right. outside of the urinal. And I'm just like, whoa, that guy is in the NBA. So it was. I, I saw it like more the fact that uh, you know Mayweather fighting in a, in a, in was it August? 
more NBA players came out. And you see this correlation, and I think you nailed it there, with the fact that they can kind of see themselves in fighters who usually come from, you know, rough and tumble areas. Uh, and you see that all the time. But yeah, go ahead. Yeah, they, they live, they get to live vicariously through right. Floyd Mayweather. You know, we want to brawl on the court, but we don't for whatever reason. Right. And it's a spectacle as well. So I'm going to show up here. I'm going to support the guy that I feel like I relate most to. And uh, I, it feels like they're, like if we ever had a flagrant foul, I would want to be doing this to the guy that flagrant fouled me. So it, there's there's a laundry list of reasons why you know NBA players relate to these guys, but certainly the spectacle of it all, something like McGregor Mayweather, yeah. uh, is going to draw the biggest names, and they want to be front and center. Rob Perez, Action Network, Worldwide Wob. It's it's great to see your face because for a while I thought that you were Adam Silver. <laughs> I get that a lot, but I, I've been consistent with it since yes. day one. I've had two avatars. I've had David Stern, and then when David Stern retired, three three days later, the NBA commissioner rose again. There's too many religious uh, over, things to talk about there, yeah. but Adam, Adam Silver became the NBA commissioner of my avatar, so I can't change it at this point. No, you got to stay consistent. Yeah. <laughs> Wobbs, fist percentage case study, basketball brawls, punching inefficiency. I was uh, really happy to work with you on that. I thought it came out great. Let's talk again soon, man. I really enjoyed this. Thanks for having me. All right, Rob.